1: Helping you find the words to create shared reality in a way that's true to yourself. This is the 21st show of my monthly feature, Our Voices, an inside look into my guest's life journey, one that may be very different than you'd expect. We'll discuss ways to accelerate social change that levels the playing field and helps everyone live to their full potential. I encourage you to listen with curiosity and without judgment to this account of what it means to grow up, go to school, struggle, work, and live in our world. Today is an extra special episode. I am joined by my dear friend and former Cisco colleague with whom I've shared a deep kinship for over two decades since meeting at the company. He's still going strong in his 21st year there, which is in no small way due to his focus on helping Cisco innovate and in supporting the nonprofit and social sector all over the globe. In a company keen to do more than its fair share to bring the power of the internet to benefit underserved individuals and communities worldwide. He's played key roles in harnessing Cisco resources during tsunamis, earthquakes, and famines. He's created partnership strategies with nonprofits to help them scale, replicate, and sustain their solutions so they amplify their impact. I'm looking forward to you hearing about his professional career and not least, His latest endeavor, the $100 million climate impact initiative of Cisco's foundation, of which he served as executive director for over a decade. I must admit, though, I'm even more keen for you to hear his personal journey, especially during the past nine years when he's essentially been confined to his home. I am delighted to introduce my soulful and fearless friend, the lead for climate impact and regeneration at Cisco Systems, Peter Tavernise. Peter, welcome to Say It Skillfully.
2: Thanks for having me. Really appreciate the invitation.
1: Well, I'm really looking forward to, uh, to just listeners learning about you. And, and at the core of saying skillfully is being in good relationship within yourself. And doing so creates the opportunity to find one's true north. From when we first met, that was something that really stood out about you, Peter. And I've only since really seen that intensify. And you're just on a remarkable journey. So I'm really grateful for your willingness to to share it with us today.
2: Glad to. Again, thanks.
1: Let you start wherever you'd like to start.
2: Well, I'm a military brat, as we say in the parlance. Grew up in the shadow of Mount Tava, Mountain of the Sun. I just remember jackrabbits, rattlesnakes, large grasshoppers you could catch in your hand. snow that was taller than me that would gather between the houses and we would tunnel into it and f4 jets flying overhead you can imagine a bunch of air force kids we made a lot of paper airplanes and little parachute people with ziploc bags and string and uh, little figurines Moved to D.C. at the age of eight, which was quite a shift. My dad had a series of Pentagon assignments and worked for two different chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The expression is he flew a desk. He was a protocol officer, so wasn't a rated pilot. My mom had taught uh, early on in the New York pu- uh, public school system. Uh, used to tell stories of her students you know, living in conditions where rats were crawling over them in the night and so each of them had in their own way displayed and kind of exemplified uh, aspect of a life of service so i was an english major undergrad i went to grad school with the thought that i was going to be a, pro- a college professor and as i was studying literature religion i had various graduate advisors say to me you don't actually understand what graduate school is for son you're supposed to go deep in one subject and i'm like well but I'm only interested in the thing in between these two subjects. Fortunately, I found a few faculty that were willing to sign up on my master's, but those in the PhD programs ahead of me essentially said, run, do not walk away. There are no jobs. Do anything but academia. This was in the early 90s. So I wound up fundraising for higher education, which was an amazing uh, segue. I was able to stay in a university environment. I got to go home at five. I did not have to publish or perish, and I was already making more than an associate professor. So I was like, what's not to like about that life? And the way that I saw that was uh, as a midwife to meaning, being to the person who would assist to tell the story, again, English major, all about narrative, about something good that needed to be born in the world and help to provide that compelling case to the folks that had access to those resources and just doing that handshake. So that was early years. And then I got to be very passionate about the possibilities of the early days of the internet with nonprofits and technology. And I joined a group of volunteers calling ourselves circuit riders. We were proselytizing large audiences of nonprofit executive directors from Florida to Chicago, where we could speak to, say, 250 people and say, this is the internet. This is a web page. How many of you? in this large audience have an email address and five people would raise their hand. And that got us uh, tagged to be an advisory panel for a statewide family foundation that wanted to know how to make more successful technology grants. They had given various nonprofits enough funds to buy computers, et cetera. And they come back six months later and those computers were just stacked up literally as a doorstop inbox. So they gave us $200,000 and two years to make a few grants and then learn if we could, what are the do's and don'ts in terms of successful technology grant making. So then they had us out on the road proselytizing foundation executive directors, do this, don't do that. And we called them on it. They they didn't seem to be doing what they had us out there preaching. And they said, you're right. You're right. We should probably hire somebody. Do any of you want to apply? So I had 48 hours to Kind of decide do i want to jump ship from this made for me career and do something else decided yes and it is the case that a lot of folks on the fundraising side of the table feel like okay if you get to the funding side then you've reached the happy hunting grounds like everything's beautiful there are no problems i'm here to tell you that the inside of a white bag is the same as the inside of the black bag they're just different problems um so, I felt more like I was the youngest adopted son in a family than a new hire. I was the first hire in 13 years. And possibly failure to influence at that stage of my career, but after two years of an extraordinary apprenticeship in general grant making, I still felt like I was dragging a family foundation board in a direction that they didn't quite get. They still saw technology as the same as a phone or a fax machine. So, some of my friends in the nonprofit mafia said, hey, Pete, there's this job at Cisco you should look at. And I said, no, thanks. All corporations are the devil, not interested. Bury me with my nonprofit boots on, ride or die, you know? And they actually put it under my nose and said, no, read this, really, it's, it's all you. And I looked at it and the mandate was transform the nonprofit sector through the use of the internet using all the assets and resources of this multinational that was really building the internet at that point including the volunteer skills of their employees the modest amount of cash and the product and services in their business ecosystem partners resellers customers so i said all right i'll interview but they'll never hire me because i don't have an mba 21 years later never say never uh it's never been the same day twice been an extraordinary point from which to move the world and um You know, we get into the left turn at Albuquerque, which is the health turn that happened in 2012. But I'll just stop there for now.
1: Here are uh, the thing that I I love hearing this is there's this brashness about you when you when you say it, Peter. But it's like the last way you come across. And so it's that ability to 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 be effective and wanting to make the change but not landing in a way for people so that, that they're afraid of the change. And I don't know if you know that that's a really secret sauce that I think you have. <laughs> Thanks
2: for saying that. Um, part of doing this work coming from the nonprofit side is really wanting to be sure that we can partner in a way that honors the the fact that neither side can do what they do without the other, there's often a power dynamic in the philanthropic side that is unhealthy. And on the other side, there's a kind of poverty mentality on the nonprofit side that can be unhealthy. So meeting folks as peers and co-practitioners and a community of practice really is essential to how we do what we do.
1: Well, it's it comes very easily for you because you really truly believe it. and. Uh, I know that you're like a bad liar, like I am to yourself. So when you first got to the evil corporate and you had to kind of wrestle with the fact that, wait a second, I'm going to the dark side, but it's going to be the light side. I'm just wondering, was that a pretty easy switch that clicked for you or was a little bit of agonizing and soul searching?
2: Um, No, just like starting at the Family Foundation, I ran into a bunch of different invisible walls, including vocabulary and culture that I didn't understand. So I grew up in the military and then I was in academia. I basically had zero experience in the private sector and um, just down to things like, you know, in the nonprofit sector side, you can get consensus in a meeting and that's the decision. And you all go off and do your thing. In business, if you do that, they think you're a completely loose cannon. So I was getting consensus all day long and going off and doing stuff. And they were like, who is this Peter guy? Like, he's just like he didn't get my buy buy in and sign off. I was like, well, what's that? And I'd never even heard the expression. Uh, I was also there for four big months, enjoyed the heck out of it, and was promptly laid off when the tech downturn hit. So that was Cisco's first layoff, 8,000 people. And I was able to stay with the company under the auspices of the Cisco Community Leadership Program, which you participated in with NetHope. The first 88 of us were placed for 12 to 18 months in a nonprofit that was a partner of Cisco, um, various ones around the country. For 12 to 18 months at one third pay and full benefits it was extraordinary i was like well one third pay is actually about the same as my non salary was so that's great and then i worked for a year at north carolina public allies helping them they were in the middle of kind of that seven year uh, ebb after their founding and we were able to relaunch them soundly and they're still going strong years later Then i was rehired and was able to move out here to san jose where my wife was from and just never look back. I, you know, The first five years, though, I really was needing to learn how to be successful in a large organization and specifically in the private sector, just learning what any MBA would have known, just walking out of, out of their graduation ceremony, I had to learn on the job.
1: Yeah, I, I just have to do a shout out because thanks to your pioneering efforts and those who were with you in that first class of the community fellows, I ended up at one of the most impactful 18 months of my career. For sure, and uh, I really owe that to you to kind of for me to see the light and realize that the public sector, private sector, and citizen sector, you know, need each other. And only by integrating all those efforts, um, by honoring all those um, different entities, can we in fact realize that it's just a matter of will, and none of these problems in the world are intractable. So I know that you've you've actually lived that your whole life. Um, I am. Curious, and I think you know this notion of learning moments mistakes that you made. But just for folks listening, are there any particularly hilarious mistakes uh, or, or ahas uh, that you had in those first five years of uh, the Cisco MBA, if you will?
2: Well, that first one was a big one, just <laughs> understanding the difference of consensus versus buy in and sign off. Um, I think that just about everything I did for those first five years was like that. You know, the other was, I kept trying to turn PowerPoints into some sort of orchestra, you know, with multiple movements and, you know, too many notes. It's kind of like uh, the ability to learn how to take an English major who is in love with writing and summarize for a business audience took some uh, real patience, I think, on the on the part of Mike Utrinka and other of my extraordinary mentors and managers so now you know i crank that stuff out like you know daily without any thought and help mentor others who are who are newer and greener to do the same but it's not something that um came easily
1: yeah that's a great growth i didn't realize it didn't come easily because it you did you fake it you faked it well now you've learned it um it from a uh um did did you ever think about like I don't I don't I, I, I want to leave like the politics or any of that mm-hmm. get too much for you, Peter?
2: Not really. I mean, it's one of those realizations, like when I, and even when my dad left the military and went to the private sector, he's like, "Wow, I used to work with trained killers, and this they were nothing like the people out here in the private sector." Um, and so that somewhat prepared me. But academia, I mean, you've heard stories um and i was like wow i'm so glad i'm leaving academia because i can just get rid of all that politics and I'm like well welcome to a small family foundation all right well then i'm leaving that and then you know certainly there will be less politics where i go next it's just a fact of life in a human organization after you get to two or three people you have that so um that was a great realization to to just realize like you know camping and mosquitoes or crickets it's like well wow. You know, there's nothing you can do about it. And so you just learn to navigate and, or tolerate. And um, the good news is that when we're in this particular type of department where most of the entire focus is on doing good, uh, there's a lot less of that than I've seen in other companies. And honestly, whenever I would cavetch with my peers at any other company in the Valley and beyond, they would say, oh, but Pete, Cisco's the best of them. And they're
1: right part
2: of why I'm still here after 21 years. It's
1: amazing. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, Let us go into, you know, just, you seem, you seem very at one and I just am kind of curious as a kid, you know, and you, this military, you know, you have to develop an adaptability, but I'm just curious, did you feel like you fit in? Were you like, as a kid, how might you have described Does anyone
2: yourself? ever feel like they yeah. fit in? I don't I don't know that, that that's the case. I mean, I'd love to talk to anybody who felt like they fit in in junior high school, for instance. Yeah, four high schools in four years was excruciating at that age. We went from D.C. to Rome to Belgium and back to D.C. And they closed my previous high school. So we were in a new high school where my graduating class was like over 600. We had to graduate at the GW campus. Um, so it did helped me to be adaptable and it did help me understand that the unit the united states wasn't all that you know running into international students who were on their fourth or fifth language had just finished aeronautical engineering and got their pilot's license i'm like well i can play atari you know (laughs) (laughs) so i really when i got back to the united states and um you know i'd been telling everybody about how well the united states doesn't have homeless people like these folks are trying to wash their windshield in rome and I got back and, you know, suddenly in D.C. in my city, there were homeless people. So that was, I think, one of the things that kind of moved me in that direction of, of social change work or change making, working in the the nonprofit sector and, and what I do now. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm still friends with some of those folks and a lot of them wound up moving back to the D.C. area because they were also military brats and their parents retired and worked for. Various of what were called the Beltway Bandits back then may still be, uh, or other jobs in the region, and even international students still in touch with.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I just, you know, I, I, I think of a lot of folks I know, and, and I'm fortunate because I have a lot of friends who I think are really in this, like, sweet spot of, you know, who they are and how they're contributing and where they are. And you're among those. So I just feel like it's really just the glove in the hand, you know, just this perfect fit. Um, but I know it, you know, it isn't all glam in the collaborating across uh, the, all these sectors. So, you know, just as a reality check, maybe you could uh, humor us with you know, some of the absolutely best cases of solving these problems and, the shining you know kind of the best of people and then I, I wouldn't mind hearing some of the maybe a little bit of a nightmare that you've gone through
2: sure and i think most of the nightmare is never having enough resources to address you know infinite and ever expanding need um, but just in terms of best case just starting with nethope organization founded to help solve the problem where multiple aid NGOs in countries across the globe were paying three or more thousand dollars a month in broadband charges. So the question was, could we get a collection, the CTOs of these aid organizations to do aggregated need collective bargaining to assist with that problem? And they, in the first year or so, managed to nail it. And then the question was, how could they collaborate to create things, mobile solutions for reestablishing broadband, up down local area wireless network access in situations of disaster like Haiti earthquake or what have you. And so then the net relief kits were part of what was invented at that point, which was at the time giant Pelican cases where they would carry them on the C-130 airplanes to wherever was needed. And uh, I think during that Haiti earthquake, they were able to, with NetHope and their members, get over 20 organizations back up and running within 48 hours so they could do the aid work that they needed to do. And with our own Cisco Tactical Operations Team, which is a core team, plus um, in terms of the crisis response, uh, hundreds of Cisco volunteers that could just at the drop of a hat uh, fly out to Puerto Rico a few years ago after the Hurricanes hit that region. Uh, they were able to stay for almost six months. Uh, Chuck and Fran got on an airplane and went and visited them. They were sleeping in the uh, in the IT closet uh, because it was the only air conditioned place, you know, in in the region. And then they helped to rewire and reconnect the top one hundred sites in Puerto Rico uh, over the course of those months. So that's really an extraordinary and ongoing uh entity and as you know their annual conference is a highlight for many in the sector i think another i would just mention is that years ago we went down to a small conference in la to see a education software provider and i remember saying to mike yutrinka who was the executive director of the foundation at the time like i've seen lots of software interventions i've seen people spend millions of dollars to make absolutely gorgeous games and not one of them has actually helped kids to learn math uh, we went to see some of the demos and some of the lectures and heard from administrators there for this solution called Mind Research Institute's ST Math. They were serving about 1,600 students, I think, at the time in the LA region. And I left that saying to Mike on the airplane back, I hope that we can figure out a way for every child in the world to be able to access this because it's the best thing I've ever seen in all the years that I've been doing this work. And having the opportunity to work with Dr. Matthew Peterson, who's one of these brain on fire geniuses, triple major from UC Davis. in I think like neuroscience, electrical engineering um, and math, he, he was dyslexic growing up and he wanted to, to create a math game that was nonverbal based so that kids like him could learn. And what he produced is a game that's from earliest grades all the way up through pre-algebra WestEd did a study of them comparing them to other software interventions in math. And regardless of age, culture of origin, gender, and sometimes even language disability, uh, based on this design, kids who are below grade level could reach at or above grade level within one year, doing only two hours a week of outside class instruction and then the usual math classes. We've been in classrooms with kids who are doing these math games who are being called for recess and they're like, not now, I'm doing math. <laughs> so that's that's one of the ones where we were really excited to be able to bring them from a kind of sneaker net in-person install base to fully e-enabled, uh, now qualified in all 50 states to state standards. And you can believe me that when COVID hit, they had a huge hockey stick in their uh in their enrollment. And this is what we see with a lot of our nonprofits is that by bringing these internet-based solutions to market, uh, they all seem to, especially in the education space, be ready for that need when COVID hit.
1: Uh, Biggest smile, my heart is so warm. I love, 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 love that. Um, Okay, my friend, I uh, am, am wowed by you, talking to me now, being where you are. And would you kindly take our listeners through uh, the unexpected uh, twist and turn of, um, of your own health?
2: Sure. Well, um, it's one of these things where there was a perfect storm of things that we were able to kind of look back at after the fact. But for the first five to seven years, I was just experiencing what I called the carousel of nightmare horses just one symptom after another, and initially all the test results seemed to be normal. Um, I had less and less energy, was sort of like walking through a gray fog um, mentally, and suddenly started dropping weight. And one of our trustees looked at me, he's a former Marine sniper, and he said, dude, you look like a POW, like go home. What are you even doing here? Uh, so that was the beginning of, as my wife says, I was working from home before it was cool. Uh, Cisco was extraordinary in terms of supporting me throughout that time, helping me get like medical second opinion and all that. Uh, but it really was not until that seventh year that I went to the 32nd medical and allied health professional who said, Hey, I think I know what's going on with you read this book it was titled Never Bet Against Occam, and was about something called mast cell activation disorder. We also had discovered a toxic mold infestation in our house. So for two of those seven years, I was trying to get well while steeping in neurotoxins from two different uh, neurotoxic molds um, in the closet of the bedroom where I was and in the laundry room. What was puzzling was after we left the house and did the remediation, I didn't get m- markedly better. So the question was, did I irreversibly damage my my neurology, like, you know, exactly what 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 are we dealing with? So after, you know, maybe starting about three and a half now uh, years ago, I was able to the expression I, I use is or this the, the metaphor I use is when you throw a frisbee on the beach and it kind of veers down and you think it's just gonna hit the dirt and then at the last minute it kind of springs back up. That was what the feeling was like. I used to beg the universe for just five minutes a week that I didn't feel like I was gonna die. And I had in my twenties studied Being with Dying with Roshi Joan Halifax, thinking I wanted to work in hospice. Little did I know that later I would be using those same practices as I lay in bed curled up in a ball, just thinking in between the in-breath and the out breath, there is a space to rest. And you know, the the ability to now, you know, I get a little bit irked if I feel badly for five minutes a week. So as I keep saying, if I don't get any better than I am now, I'm just going to change my name to Deeply Grateful Tabernici. Uh, But yeah, it was it was not um, not easy. You know, for the first seven years, I was basically circling the black hole of despair. And um, you know, as each thing happened, I was catastrophizing like, "What's the next possible worst thing that's going to happen?" And then that would happen. Kind of interesting from a, a manifesting standpoint. And at a certain point, a friend of mine, a Zen sister who was getting ordained named Heather, handed me a book called The Hidden Lamp. And in that, there were a collection of kind of the, the lost teaching stories and koans of the matriarchs of Buddhism, which most all of the, the handed down koans are all very patriarchal. So one of them was called Yong's Ship of Compassion. So this, this academic, this professor is traveling around various Zen monasteries, and he comes in to this one, and it's kind of like the Western showdown. You know, the, the music plays in the background, and he he says, I came to see this great ship of compassion. Who knew that she would just be some old crone? And this Zen master, Ziyong, shouts, What is this? Is it male? Is it female? And he has no response to this. And she says, Come closer. Let me tell you. And she says, Since you left Spirit Mountain, mother and son have never been parted. He falls to his knees and he says, I trust you completely. And in the one or two page kind of explication written by uh, one of the female Buddhist leaders from around the world that they had writing these commentaries throughout the hidden lamp, she said, What would it be like for us to trust each moment completely? And that just rang some sort of inner gong with me. And I realized that I had not been trusting any moment for seven years. And I thought, what would it be like for me to go from this, you know, not knowing is what is killing me to letting not knowing be the practice? And that really is part of what shifted things. Like, if my circumstances can't change, then I must change the who and how I am in my circumstances.
1: It's so powerful, um, and I, you know, I just don't wish this struggle for anyone. Um, but to see the growth and the way you have just been whole with it—I mean, I, I think. I think it's fair to say a lot of folks would just, they'd really go crazy. And, you know, you did not really, I mean, I remember checking with you from time to time and, you know, you'd make it to the doctor and you just, you didn't go out. People are going crazy in COVID for the months of times that they're in, you know, and, um, I guess, I, I guess if you were to go back that first part, you know, those early seven years, um, what would you say to that, Peter?
2: Yeah, well, when COVID hit, I actually was asked by some friends to start sharing all of the things that I learned. And I put together a couple of drawings um, of those lessons. And they're things like simply recognizing um, not everything is no. Like not everything is I can't and so i started saying things like yes but not today another was not all things can be fixed and not all things that can be fixed need to be fixed right now um another was um some things work for some of the people some of the time so a lot of people will be on health forums saying like hey this thing like really helped everybody should do this and it's like well no not everyone is going to respond the same way and then the code to that was what i need today is not what i need tomorrow or maybe next week so the the window moves the symptoms change and what works maybe doesn't work later or you need something different so to be adaptable and then just to work within your constraints um at a certain point i realized i hadn't made a drawing in years and so i started making just one drawing a night on my ipad and that turned into, over the years, over 700 drawings. I would listen to podcasts like this or, or books on tape. And that was something where I could look and see, like, okay, I, there is part of me that's alive. Having a family that was so incredibly supportive was also just extraordinary. Uh, and I just shout out to them for what they have been through. And I recently said to both my kids, like, there was no may- way for me to recognize how well you navigated that. But I just want to say, like, you know, if you're sorting that out in therapy for the rest of your life, like, I'm sorry. And and, and both of them just said, no, look, like this helped us in ways that we didn't see at the time. But now when our friends or family of our friends are going through issues, as one of my daughters said, really helped give her a lens on disability rights um, and various alternative health modalities. So, you know, I don't wish as you were about to say this on anyone and yet the past has served its purpose. And I feel like I would never have become the person that I am today if I hadn't been through that. So again, still deeply grateful to have Ernissi here.
1: Oh, I just love it. I love it. And, um, part of that is the many doors that, some out of necessity, right? Born out of necessity that you had to focus on, but I know you're so excited in, in the spirit of folks, you know, in careers, the ability to continue to grow, to be curious, to push and open new doors. So just share with folks, you know, some of the things that maybe started as health necessities or health explorations, and maybe how you're thinking a bit about your own career growth um, and impact on the world.
2: Sure. Well, I just finished reading a book called brave new medicine by Dr. Cynthia Lee, and I had to put it down three times because her symptoms were so similar to mine. So she's a medical doctor who went through the same kind of what she calls health awakening that I did. And um, we're now becoming really good friends. It is the case that um, I didn't really understand what it meant to practice standing, sitting, walking and lying down like the classic Buddhist You know admonitions from the earliest days of Buddhism until I was right up against in Zen we say like facing the wall. So with symptoms that were not quitting 24/7 and not sleeping most nights, um, I was just practicing things like meta practice, which is M E T T A. It just means like compassion practice. May I be well. May I be healthy. May I be at peace. May all beings be well. May all beings be happy. May all beings be at peace. And it'd be counting sheep, like I felt like I was actually doing something positive. Also, the job itself, as one of my colleagues who's been, has had Parkinson's for almost 20 years, had told me many years um, in our working together before I got sick, the job itself meant that I didn't have to always think about my own health. I was helping others. And I really started living by that uh, admonition by his holiness the dalai lama when discouraged encouraged others i did that in patient forums um, and with you know colleagues once people find out you've been chronically ill all sorts of stories start coming out and it, you wind up being kind of an unofficial um matchmaker there with with various modalities so and then i don't know if you want me to get into it yet but um discovering executive and leadership coaching and then getting trained as a coach was just the first of many extraordinary expansions.
1: Yeah, go there. Talk to us about what um, what moves you about it and, and um, what excites you about it.
2: Sure. Well, this is kind of like when my friend said, there's this job at Cisco. My boss said, hey, I think you guys need to do some leadership coaching around executive influence. And I was like, executive coaches, you know, like what can they possibly add to 20 years or so of experience? Well, I was so wrong. Uh, our first group engagement lasted about three months and I went back hat in hand to my boss and I was like, do you happen to have any more of those development dollars? Cause I could really stand to talk to this coach more a one-on-one. And she asked me, Tara Collison was my first coach. She said the, what I call the three faithful coaching questions like, what are you doing? How long have you been doing it and what's next? And, you know, honestly, I wasn't sure if I was going to live on a day-to-day basis, so I didn't have any what's next. Um, after doing a lot of work with her, it became clear that I may have been coaching instinctively since the third grade and all of our grantees for the last two decades. But I didn't know there was a, th- a thing that you could go study and, like, get a toolkit for that. So I asked her where she had gotten certified. I went and did that. I was, in, at the time, one of only two fully virtual programs the International Coach Academy based out of Australia. And it was just like being at the international school. It was like I had coaching peers from like one lived in Berlin and she was from Athens and another one was from Norway and she lived in Barcelona and another guy was from Australia, but he just immigrated to Canada. Like it was awesome. I just felt like I was back in with my people. And at the end of that, I was still hungry for more content. So I listened to one Coaches Rising podcast each night for two months and kind of mind mapped all these different coaching modalities and made a mark wherever I was feeling that inner gong that I mentioned before. And it really fell out to two different coaching categories. One is Somatics, which is the Western Richard Strozzi version, at least in this case. There's also the Peter Levine, uh, Stephen Porges, more East Coasty kind. And then something called purpose guiding, which is going a level deeper than executive coaching, which is usually about like your next three to five years. This is asking the question, what did I come here and take a body to do? What is the gift that only I can give? What is my mythopoetic identity? So I did a deep dive on both of those and um, really led to even more expansion.
1: Yeah, I can just hear you just light up when you talk about it. This somatics, could you clarify for listeners a sure. bit about that?
2: So it's, it's about kind of healing our Cartesian split. I'm a martial artist from years back. And if you'd asked me at any point in my life, are you fully embodied? I would have said, absolutely. Wrong again. Um, so we do all sorts of practices about centering and coming into our bodies in order to then lead from that place of, of grounded centeredness. Rosie says that we all need three things, like a plant needs water, soil, and sunlight. We need safety, belonging, and dignity. And when we're young, we look to our parents and caregivers in our community to provide those things, which is just right. That's how it should be. But because there's no such thing as a perfect community or perfect childhood, we alter our behavior to get maximum access to safety, belonging, and dignity in our sort of childhood of origin the challenge is when we carry those habits these what he calls um, adaptive traits into adulthood and we use them reactively in our day-to-day lives at work in our relationships and then we get mad when people don't react the way that they're supposed to like according to our patterns so the way that richard states it is we're all always practicing something is what you're practicing getting you the results that you want? If not, what should you be practicing instead? So you practice things like uh, grab log, which is if you feel a contraction, like in some sort of interaction with, again, spouse, friends, co-workers, you ask what's feeling threatened here, safety, belonging, or dignity? And who's showing up to take care of me? My perfectionist part, my people pleaser part, my anxious part. And what I love about somatics is no parts of ourselves are excluded. Instead of saying to that part or that adaptive trait, like you're bad, go away. You just give them a big hug and you say, as my coach, Sandy says, let me invite you to my banquet table and offer you new nourishment. So you work on changing those habits, those practices become a kind of new shape from the old shape that you were to a new shape that you're becoming. And as I say, once you begin to realize that safety belongs inside of me, that it actually is self-generated belonging and dignity, who wouldn't want to be around a leader who's giving away their surplus of safety, belonging, and dignity? You just look at Chuck, like he just exudes this incredible faith that you've got this. You can just feel it in your chest when he looks at you. So, you know, this is, this is one of the fruits of that practice is becoming present and fully resourced so that others can find that within themselves through your, like the vibration that you are putting out.
1: Be present and fully resourced. This is just the empowerment that you've given yourself and for folks listening to realize how much we can really empower ourselves um, to, to be our best friends to flourish uh, on our own terms. And, you know, what I'm hearing you is just this, you're just bringing it on. And there's the, the judgingness, you know, it's taken me a long time to get a little bit better at less judging, you know, but I sense you're given where you've, you've been these last decade, you know, that, that judging thing can really get in the way and to yeah. see it purely for what it is. That's a real gift.
2: One of the other things I did while healing early on before I found that, one doctor was called neural retraining and it's just looking at mental patterns it's very much like CBT um, and Buddhism honestly but um, in doing that one of the things that you are to encourage yourself is as a future self you say "Yay! like you did it you know we're healthy now keep it up I love you and the first day that I did that exercise I couldn't say I love you to myself I was like well that's peculiar Like if you asked me, I certainly would have insisted very defensively that I love myself. And it took honestly three weeks of doing that five times a day, twice a day before it really landed in me. And on that day, I remembered something from the sixth Zen patriarch, Wei Ning. He wrote something like, when you have met the good friend in your own mind, then you will have begun to awaken. And you, know, you can just gloss past something like that and not really get it. And then it comes back full circle and it hits you in the right between the eyes. Uh, so yeah, it, it is the case that we're often our own worst critics. And that inner perfectionist judge, You know, I'm the child of a military perfectionist, right? <laughs> and the joke about us recovering perfectionists is that we're always trying to get perfection, or sorry, we're always trying to get recovery just right.
1: <laughs> I hadn't heard that. That's fabulous.
2: So, you know, you got to cut yourself some slack. And, and I know that you can, no one can tell you this until you've arrived at it yourself. But it's working at treating yourself as you would anyone else you care deeply about. And when that lands in you, then suddenly you're able to be available to yourself and be that reflective, attuned presence for and with others, not as Dr. Naomi Reman says, to fix, help, or save them.
1: I'm just smiling, and I'm nodding my head, and I'm so proud. I'm so proud of you, Peter. Um, let, let us segue to the little Say It Skillfully part of the show, challenging conversation or situation you had or have now that we can unpack.
2: Sure. Well, um, Again, when folks get on the funding side of the table, they think life is beautiful, but 99% of the time, we're saying no, as supportively and as encouragingly as possible to folks that you know aren't going to be funded for various reasons, criteria, or just lack of budget. What is really difficult is when an extremely senior leader comes and says, "I need you to fund this thing." Uh, often, the easier answer is, "Well, the foundation can't," you know fulfill legally any commitment of an officer or an employee of the company. But in other uh, situations, it's, um, that's not the case, You know where there wasn't a commitment made and it's a really quite compelling, but still isn't a match. So uh, recently had the experience of a senior vice president coming to me twice with a pitch and they were doing amazing work as volunteers with an organization. And I had to tell him no categorically two times in a row um, I don't know if that, that fits in the, in the rubric of saying skillfully, but I'm glad to, to walk through that if it's helpful.
1: Yeah, I would love to. We'd love to hear how you handled that.
2: So, part of this is, um, and there's a coda to this, which I'll get to in a second, uh, is simply to help them understand what it is that you do look for. And so, what you're helping them do is you're recruiting them. It's it's a move that we do often when people come to us with complaints say about the matching guest program. We're like, great. You want to serve on that committee? <laughs> and then suddenly they get a taste of what our day to day life is like because they understand, oh, it's much more complicated than I thought. Um, so you enlist them in understanding what it is that you are looking for. And then you say, if you find anything that looks like this, please come see me. I can't wait, you know, to help you get that funded and also. This thing, as you can see now that we've walked through these criteria, isn't really a fit. Uh, What happened uh, after these conversations was someone else in our organization wound up being able to fund it from a different budget. And right after that happened, I had to call him up and say, now, here's why my two no's are still no and this one is a yes. I had to make the distinction clear. So sometimes, you know, continuing to ask, you will find somebody who can say yes. So that's another say at Skillfully there
1: love it. I love it. You had did a great job of getting that person to see what it was like in your shoes and to make the decision that you would have made without the heavy handed no. And then this notion folks have heard the shared reality, you took the time to educate and just let them know. And, and I think I can, you know, you're so skillful as it is, but just being patient being nurturing um, helping people understand people can feel that and that comes off as a a show of respect right i'm not here to just do a heisman tell you no i'm not here to just make it go away i'm here to partner with you and help you understand but also as you did you know they you were able to find a solution which is fabulous i love it i love it okay um so let as we wrap here a few more questions peter um you know <laughs> so much was so hard for so long. Is there anything that's hard for you now? Well,
2: yeah. I mean, life is hard for all of us right now. Um, And I think it's just that measured pacing of recognizing that we're in the middle of this global COVID situation while also facing the climate situation. We didn't get so much into the $100 million fund, but the ability now to have that as my full time job to be able to assist and work with folks. Um, you know, that's the big present challenge and opportunity, not just of our generation, but really of humanity in our maturation process. How can and will we be able to embody from that somatic standpoint? the bright, attractive future that we want. As Amanda Scott says, What would it look like if we got everything right? We don't have a lot of pictures of that we've got pictures of starving polar bears in this endless conveyor belt of natural disasters that just keep us shut down. So I'm a trained climate coach as well. And that whole arc is to assist people to move from that sense of shutdown. Like what can I do? I'm only one person, climate despair, anxiety, grief, paralysis, and be able to move towards tend and befriend and the ability to look together at what is the shared climate future that we want.
1: Peter, I know we can't solve for this, but, you know, folks listening, I think a lot of folks might be throwing their arms up in the air. What can I do? And I and I would love to hear from you speaking to just regular citizens around the world. You know, what's some, some, what would you like them to know? What suggestions yeah. might you have that they can be part of the solution in this?
2: In my experience, and if you want to look up the work of Joanna Macy with the work that reconnects, uh, it's a really great um, set of folks who are trained to assist. And also there's the Climate Coaching Alliance, uh, worldwide organization of about 1600 and growing climate coaches. Um, the, The most important thing is to realize in any group of people, as soon as you start voicing your climate grief or concerns, you realize that almost everybody in the room is feeling it. And as soon as you realize that, it shifts the conversation to wow, okay, but if we're all feeling that, what can't we accomplish together? And that's really the empowerment that, you know, in our kind of fractionated society, um, we're just kind of kept separated from ourselves, each other, and from the planet. And the move is, you know, as one of my dear friends, Mila Aliana says, our only job right now is to come home to our wholeness. And once we come home to our wholeness, the work that we need to do will become apparent. Bio Okomolafe, who's a Nigerian writer uh, now in Chennai and luminary, he also talks about not forwards, not backwards, but awkwards, sitting in the crossroads of not knowing, waiting for what's emergent. So, can we have the bravery to be in community, to raise these difficult um, questions? You know, what can I do? And then just going through that MIT U-Lab journey of going down into despair and up the other side of hope. It's like, what's the situation? It's bad, oh my God, it's really bad. And then what can we do about it? What can we together do about it going up the other side of hope? There's also curriculum by a group called Prochamama Alliance, three different sets, uh, Awakening the Dreamer, then a six week cohort process called Game Changer Intensive, and then their action training. Also fantastic for folks that wanna get involved.
1: I love it. And uh, folks, we will, I will publish this when we post so that you could have a list of some of these resources to avail yourselves of um, that's Thank you, Peter, so much for sharing that sure,
2: and uh, the academic that I am. I also have a reading list I can send that you can share with them.
1: Yes. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled about it. So uh, just a couple more things. Uh, Peter, do you have a regret or do over assuming you're where you are now? Yeah. Well, I am
2: working with no guilt, no shame, no regrets as part of that recovering perfectionism. As I said, the past has served its purpose. And I wouldn't be the person that I am today doing this work if I hadn't been through all of that, like being able to pitch the 100 million to the trustees from the perspective that I did with, you know, part of my illness was due to environmental toxicity. I had the... Um, glyphosate levels that uh, a farmer using that every day in the field would have had. Turns out genetically, I just, am really bad at detoxing, but, um, you know, bringing that to, and all of the coaching training and everything that I've been through to that work now um, helps me to be, as I mentioned, more present and attuned for and with all of those that we would seek to serve.
1: Uh, Yes. And for folks listening, this uh, 100 million is this initiative. And just so folks know, one man can indeed make a phenomenal difference. And uh, I would say single-handedly, Peter took this seed and planted it and created uh, an opportunity where the whole organization could get behind something that can really help uh, shift the planet. And so I want folks to know that that, if that inkling is within you um, and you can manifest that, it's absolutely possible. And Peter is living proof it. Um, Peter, you've said a lot, you know, just going through this, um, it's it's been a very joyous conversation for me, but uh, just share with us, what was it like for you to share your journey today?
2: Well, it's just a wonderful opportunity. Thank you. And what I've been saying is my story is the medicine that I'm bringing back to my people, like having been through what Joan Halifax calls the fruitful darkness. Um, you know, it's, it's, the fact is that that darkness becomes the compost from which new things grow. So, as I said to folks, if I can get to this kind of place, having, you know, corporate guy, having not left these four walls for the better part of a decade, then it should be possible for anyone. And I feel like that's part of what I'm here to kind of embody and, and be an example of.
1: And you are, my friend. I appreciate you more than you can possibly know. You oh, are. You, too. Yes, too. <laughs> you, my friend, are hope, your compassion, your will personified. You know, every one of us by your side, you know, spiritually is privileged. You show us uh, what it means to live vulnerably and wholeheartedly. Gosh, the biggest. Hug from me. I couldn't not be more in awe of you. I'm cheering for you hugely. Blessed to be uh, privy in your epic journey here. You know, you are the solution. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're helping all to be safe, seen, and heard, Peter, and our true and very best selves. You take good care.
2: You too. Thank you again.
1: Ah, folks, just doesn't get any better. Um, my thought for the week in honor of Peter. May I be well. May I be healthy. May all beings be well. May all beings be healthy. And that is a wrap. Thank you for tuning in. Please be part of the solution and kindly share this show. Amplify Peter's voice. Reflect on your own top takeaways and know I'm cheering for you to be who you are and say what needs to be said so that you and those around you have a shared reality essential to make the best decisions, execute with speed, and achieve outstanding outcomes at work and in life.
0: Thanks for listening to Say It Skillfully with host Molly Chang. Join us again for more ways to say it skillfully next Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. Follow Molly on LinkedIn and Twitter. Check out sayitskillfully.com